I'm John Doberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2018 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, The Nuts and Bolts of No-Till Crop Nutrition Part 2, is brought to you by Calmer Cornheads. I encourage you to subscribe to this series currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. I'd like to take a moment to thank Calmer Cornheads for sponsoring today's episode. Calmer Cornheads is home to the world's first 12 and 15 inch cornheads and residue management upgrade kits. Their patented BT chopper stalk rolls cut, chop, and shear corn stalks into confetti-like residue for accelerated decomposition and have been voted the no-till product of the year list five times by farmers across America. As your cornhead specialist, Calmer Cornhead is committed to providing proven solutions to a variety of your harvesting problems and offers a 100% satisfaction guarantee. For more information, visit calmercornheads.com or call 309 629-9000. Last time in part one of this two-part podcast series, John Grove discussed the unique characteristics of no-till soil environments and how those conditions can affect the availability of nutrients to plants. The director of the University of Kentucky Research and Education Center also covered the role nutrient stratification in no-till soils might play in your plant nutrition program as you assess your crop's needs. To lead off part two of this podcast series, Grove will shift his focus to nutrient management after crops have emerged. He'll reinforce the importance of in-season crop assessments and knowing and recognizing nutrient deficiency symptoms to optimize yields, and the pros and cons of nutrient management tools like chlorophyll meters and crop sensors. While enjoying this program, I encourage you to download a PDF of John's presentation provided on the No-Till Farmer website landing page for this podcast, so you can follow along and learn more about successful no-till nutrient management. So now I'm moving on to where we've got the crop emerged, it's growing, and we're gonna do some in-season assessment. Now the first thing that happens is a lot of people, particularly from a pickup truck windshield, including me, I do the same thing, look at the crop from afar. Do you see any symptoms? Usually, by the time you can see symptoms, before, particularly before flowering or silking, 25% of yield potential may have been lost. It can be really ugly. Even more quality may have been lost. I had about 15% of a potato field that went down. And it didn't go down so much in yield as it went down in quality. So you go from number one bakers to number three chippers and you've lost about a third of what you're gonna get per ton. Still, it is often used to diagnose a problem and I urge everyone to understand for each of their crops what different deficiency symptoms look like. I'm not gonna school you in that here, but you should know those things for your crops. Monitoring your nutrient management plan, no, they're not good for that. You should use plant tissue analysis for that. And there's the other side of the coin. Now I pulled this out of my Arkansas, Louisiana buddy's profile. Basically what we have here is three nitrogen rates and only two yields. Zero, 95, 150 pounds of N per acre, 135, 195, and 192 bushel of rough rice per acre. Really? Spend, you know, a third more? Stay green, poison green, loses money. 
Dave Mangle, back in the 1990s, and Chad Lee more recently, has shown that if you have a corn plant that's green to the ground at the time it hits black layer, you've been working for your corn. If you have one that has at least three yellow leaves, that leaves a couple relative to the ear leaf, if it has three yellow leaves and the rest of it's green, your corn's been working for you. Your stock nitrate test on stay green corn like that's going to be through the roof, and stock nitrate is another indicator that... Now, that doesn't mean you won't get in a drought year, you could get shafted anyway, okay? You understand that. I'm talking in a good year. Until Purdue, Tyson, Smithfield start paying for protein in corn, you can send them all the starch you want and as little protein as you want with corn. We want to be able, though, to diagnose any symptoms using plant analysis, because sometimes symptoms aren't really definitive. We want to determine if we've got a nutrient shortage, maybe before the symptom arises. And we want to know something about nutrient composition and supply responses when we do add some nutrients, particularly if we add a late nutrient. And we're trying to monitor or check up on our management plan. I'm not going to go into these, but these are all critical components of a plant tissue analysis sampling protocol. You need to always know what location you're supposed to take, what growth stage you're supposed to take it at, what is the crop condition, is it under stress, sometimes time of day matters, and definitely if you want accurate potassium data, do not handle with sweaty hands. It'll come right off. Don't even touch a brown paper bag with sweaty hands. It'll come right into it and it'll contaminate. Plant tissue analysis can tell you if or which nutrient is limiting. It can't tell you why. It won't say why that crop is suffering. It usually, although sensors are getting past some of this, it usually cannot tell you how much of a limiting nutrient to apply. It says you've got a problem. But it can be used to diagnose what I call hidden hunger, which is if we look at this here, we got growth on this axis and concentration of nutrient tissue on a dry basis here. It tends to rocket up real, during the deficiency, tends to rocket up real straight. But in here, you lose symptoms, but you're still 10 to 20% below yield dry matter maximum. And then you get over in here and you're wasting money on luxury consumption. So tissue analysis can help you a bit in this region here where you can't see anything, but something is happening. Every year I get calls like this, particularly in no-till environments. Now this boy is use row cleaners fairly aggressively here. But he says, you know, my stand looks great, but my crop looks kind of puny. He's heard me talk about plant tissue analysis. He says, I want to run right out there and I'm going to start taking samples. Now, I, maybe if you're Dowdy or Hula, you can do this kind of shenanigan if you've got a lot of data. But in general, there's no good interpretation for those numbers. You have to wait until they're a little bit bigger and have a little bit better root system before you do this kind of stuff. Here's why. This is, again, some of Dave's uh, data from later in his Purdue career. Corn at V3 only has about 54 miles of roots relative to the 38,000 miles of roots it's going to have at R2. I don't want to know how many grad students he burned out getting that data. Look at this shoot mass. 29 pounds an acre at V3 versus the 11,200 pounds an acre it had at R2 before much ear formation had occurred. Little plants give little information. You need them to get a bit bigger. You don't necessarily have to get to V12, but I certainly want to get them about V7, V8 before I start. And you'll notice that's where most of the sensor technologies on corn kick in. They don't have a lot of success, V3, V4, V5. Nitrogen uptake. 
Okay, you get a big chunk in here, and you've got a pretty good chunk in here, but the uptake rate is so slow here, you can't really know what that small corn is doing or why it's not doing it. Again, these tests are snapshots of plant nutritional status. As that crop grows or as that season changes, you could start getting different numbers. That's why what Dowdy and Hula do talk about, which is you take a sequence of these, if you do that, keep track of what's going on in that field between the time you took that sample and the time you took the next one. Keep track of that. Stockpile that information either up here on paper or whatever works for you. It can change a lot as the soil is explored. The nutrients may be there, but they're not in the crop for several reasons. Too cold, too wet, or maybe too dense. Something is keeping the crop getting those. In-field spectral analysis for me started with a Minolta chlorophyll meter, commonly called a SPAD meter. But over time, you know, we've been using these things in corn, we've used them in a lot of other crops, and there's now some competition on the market. Chlorophyll meters are a handy tool. Again, you have to understand what the numbers mean, because it's just going to give you a numerical readout. And you have to be willing to do some walking, because again, there's nothing automated about this except your feet, going through a field, looking at areas, good spots, bad spots, whatever. It does make a difference, this is some data out of Nebraska, that sampling time again matters. What we have on these top two graphs is we have data when the chlorophyll meter was operated right around V8. And this is when the chlorophyll meter was operated at R1 for silk. You can see that if we're looking at yield versus leaf end, here leaf end does a pretty good job in this region of emulating what the yield response looked like, but it's terrible down here. If we look at the chlorophyll meter, it was pretty good in the low-end region, but it was terrible out there. It didn't fit. But if we look at waiting until R1, both the leaf nitrogen and the chlorophyll meter readings all tended to mimic what was observed in terms of yield. Now, I understand that where we want to be is we want to have more nuance in our answers, and we want to be able to start earlier with small plants. We want to use technology, and we'd love that technology to be on the go rather than on our feet. And we want it to be connected to the solution. This is one of the early versions. This is a research unit where we had proximal canopy sensors. There is a fertilizer tank out behind it. We're in a wheat environment in this particular case. And in Kentucky, wheat was the first crop we calibrated for not the first, but the second nitrogen application. We usually use two um, using a canopy sensor. Typically speaking, you will find that it will be recommended that you have a high-end reference strip or several small areas, high in nitrogen, so that when that sensor goes over there, it tends to be sensitive to varieties. We ran it over a variety trial once and we got a lot of bounce just from varieties. So that's why these high-end strips are needed so that it can tell you relative, for that variety, relative nitrogen differences. Sometimes this is what it looks like. This is a Pioneer put this out. This is a pivot field where they just ran some strips with high end to keep the sensor calibrated as they went through this entire area of this uh, pivot. Corn yield can be very well related to the sensor parameter that's most used, which is a form of NDVI, Normalized Difference Vegetative Index. You can see here that even at V6, there's an excellent relationship between the NDVI at V6 and corn yield. Wait till V8, very, also a very, very nice relationship. Problem was, 
This is one of those old pastures in Kentucky that got torn up, put to corn when corn prices rocketed up, soybean prices rocketed up. We give a credit for nitrogen when you tear up an old pasture and put it in corn, but a lot of cow guys don't put on enough fertilizer. They're cow guys. And the bottom line was what that sensor was really reading was a lot of stunted plants, and the stunted corn was not due to nitrogen, it was due to phosphorus. This is an algorithm that guides the nitrogen rate on this axis, a function of the, what's called a sensor sufficiency index. I took this off of a commercial outfit. But when I asked them about it, they said, well, this N-rate algorithm comes from corporate. Well, if that's corporate, where's the precision A? Where is it calibrated for what you need? How do you know that 170 units is the high end? Maybe yours should be higher, maybe yours should be lower. How do you know that it should go to zero here? How do you know it shouldn't go to zero at 0.85? These are all good questions that you either have to ask or have answers to as you move into this technology because you're gonna need, in my opinion, more calibration than what I've been seeing done with these instruments. So who sets this up and what data is being used? And I'm not confident that land grants have enough resources to do this either, folks. This is where on-farm work of your own is going to really be necessary. This is what will give added value to this technology if you use it. Calibrate it, understand it for your own situation. We'll rejoin my conversation with John Grove in a minute, but I wanted to take time to once again thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. Calmer Cornheads is home to the world's first 12 and 15 inch cornheads and residue management upgrade kits. Their patented BT chopper stalk rolls cut, chop, and shear corn stalks into confetti-like residue for accelerated decomposition and have been voted to the No-Till Product of the Year list five times by farmers across America. As your cornhead specialist, Calmer is committed to providing proven solutions to a variety of your harvesting problems and offers a 100% satisfaction guarantee. For more information, visit CalmerCornheads.com or call 309-629-9000. Now let's get back to John Groh's presentation as he shares important insights about timing, placement, and sources of nutrients in no-till systems and the nature of nutrient losses that can occur in different no-till soil types as well as potential ways to avoid these losses. He'll also outline results of research that shows how the resiliency of no-till soils can stabilize yields when weather conditions are less than perfect. A little bit on timing placement and source. Generally, timing has been about nitrogen, but to make it work, we need to understand how the crop is growing. One of the things the new models do, like in Circa Field Scripts and those, AdaptN, they do a much better job of modeling how that crop is growing because you plug in a planting date, a hybrid maturity, and they do a pretty good job of modeling how that crop is growing because weather data is getting better and better. And as mesonet data becomes more available, the ability of these models and the commercial purveyors of these models to serve you will strongly improve, at least on the crop growth side. You won't have to go out there and measure your crop just to make sure what the computer is telling you is accurate. We definitely also want to avoid what are called too late applications. We want to make sure we have the nutrient, in this case nitrogen, there when it needs it. We do want to consider efficiency. One of the reasons we're looking at timing is because we're trying to avoid nutrient losses. Usually in no-till these are going to be due to differences in soil climate as well as immobilization of nitrogen. 
We want to consider, though, the cost of the equipment, the cost of our time, and timeliness. That varies a lot. Even within this room, that's going to vary a lot. Some people are going to use custom applicators and consultants to do this for them, and some people are going to try to do it themselves. Although in my case, I'd be doing it with my son, who knows a lot more about this stuff than I do. I will point out, though, that if you are using a cover crop, and I really don't care if it's a single thing like rye or wheat, or if it's a multi-species mix, or if it's a two-way, if it has even a little bit of nitrogen in it that can be released by, like, killing rye before it's four foot tall, meaning it breaks down easier, you'll get some in-season resilience and some later nitrogen supply. Here's some data that we developed. We now have eight site years of information that fits this model where it shows that, okay, if you don't have nitrogen and you've got a significant chunk of wheat or rye here, you're going to get a yield reduction. But at some point here, it crosses over, and now we're doing a pretty good job, and we don't need all this extra fertilizer nitrogen in order to maximize yield because that cover crop is breaking down, releasing nitrogen, and it's substituting for a second, maybe that last third application that some people are championing these days. Here's another example. This is a uh, long-term study where we have up here the long-term response of no-till with applied fertilizer nitrogen going from 0, 75, 150, and 300 pounds of N. This was a really good rainfall season, so we even got a bit of an uptick Probably didn't need to go here, but it probably would have ticked up right about here. Then we have the moldboard plow, or in this case, tilled area. It doesn't, it yielded very well, but it didn't yield as well. But then we took half the plots and we didn't put any fertilizer on at all. We wanted to know what would that soil deliver to that corn crop in the absence of fertilizer. Well, here's your no-till system, and here's your moldboard plow system. So you see there is organic matter in here that's turning over and releasing nitrogen, but there's a whole lot more of it here. And what's really interesting is when you follow up a really good one with a really bad one. Here's my no-till one again, maximizing out around 85. This is a bad year. Here's my no-till one without fertilizer. It beats the moldboard plow with fertilizer. So without fertilizer, it actually had more, now it had to have some nitrogen, you have to at least get it up in here but it actually thumps it because of that resilience and also the ability to hold on to water a little better. Now it is true that we have new technology out there that is going to change some of our ideas about timing because we can get over the top. Now this crop is pretty small, but clearly with this technology, you can get over a larger crop, okay? By the way, I don't know what's so special about corn guys. Hell, they've been doing this tobacco for 50 years, but anyway. But there's also placement technology here. Some of them, some people are dropping this as dribble. Some people are literally injecting it using a coulter. When nitrogen is concerned, we're really concerned about nitrogen losses. In particular, with timing, we're worried about leaching of nitrate losses on well-drained soils, particularly sandier ones, and denitrification losses on poorly drained soils, or even somewhat poorly drained soils. So if you want to improve your nitrogen timing, you might want to think about, well, do I want to apply it pre-plant, at-plant, post-plant, or maybe post-plant a number of times. There's a lot of things that go into that decision and cause a lot of producers in my state and other states to just throw up their hands and say, I'm just going to try to get it all done once and get it, get it on, and then I'll worry about what happens next. Particularly things like number of acres they have to get over. 
How much rainfall in that particular spring? How much wet soil conditions are we fighting? And how much losses of fertilizer and nitrogen should I expect anyway? We're starting to see more and more people who ask us in the spring when the rains start, well, how much nitrogen is left in my soil? Really? You expect to call from anywhere in Kentucky to Princeton and I'm going to be able to tell you that answer? Mm. But it's my job to take the call anyway. So the optimal timing is going to depend on things like your planting date, your expected crop development rate, and your soil drainage. And that's where these models are showing some improvement. I will say this, well-drained soils do offer our greatest flexibility because there's less benefit to delayed timing or split apps on these unless they're sandy. We have more application days to work with in well-drained soil. And nitrate leaching is the only risk and the risk is not very substantial in no-till soils. Once a macropore flushes out, the rest of the rain tends to go down the macropore. It doesn't, like on a conventional tilled environment, it moves as a big wetting front. And that pushes nitrate down as a front. But in a no-till environment, yes, it'll flush nitrate that's in that big hole, but after that, the water that goes down is relatively clean because you have to have diffusion of nitrate from the surrounding soil into that water that's moving down that macropore. And that doesn't happen as quickly as that water is moving through that macropore into that deeper soil profile. Poorly drained soils, however, offer our least flexibility, but they give us our greatest response to split applications. The greatest risk of loss is in these environments, but especially with pre-plant or at-plant nitrogen. And generally, it's a substantial loss potential each and every year. It's rare this side of the river to have a dry spring. Get them. So we tell people you can split your end, you can delay your end, you can modify your end source, that it matters most when it's wet and it matters most on your wetter soil. This is actually a well-drained soil. But in a dry year, splitting it between 33% at plant versus 100% at plant didn't make a darn bit of difference. But in a really good year with a lot of moisture, then when it was 33% at plant and 67% later, it gave a significant yield increase at the higher nitrogen rates for doing that. And that's on a well-drained soil, but it doesn't happen every year. If we look at a poorly drained soil, at plant nitrogen, this is the response here, and this is if it's split twice. So at this rate, there's a big response. Here's a pretty good response, and here it peters out and it falls apart. So this is one of those situations where if you want to apply a lot more nitrogen at planting, you might get past it. You might consider an inhibitor. This one was nitropyrin. These are the yields without nitropyrin over these 13 locations. These are the yields with nitropyrin. On average, about a 12 bushel difference, but the story is actually in the distribution. Some of them, particularly the ones that had higher nitrogen rates, not all of them, not this one. Some of the ones that had higher nitrogen rates didn't give much of a response. Overall, it was about a 9% response. Overall, it would have paid to put a quarter of nitropyrin per acre. Nitrification inhibitors, by the way, because they're biocides, don't get caught using one that's not FIFRA registered. It needs to be registered. You can use a chemical that says it does other things and it does nitrification inhibition as a side, but something that is strictly a nitrification inhibitor is supposed to be FIFRA registered. Both nitropyrin and DCD are registered. Nitropyrin has been reformulated as instinct. Now it's on instinct two or three by Dow. You can see here substantial responses okay, to using instinct with UAN. 
Nitropyrin in the old formulation as NSERV was not compatible, but NSERV does work as long as you've got a problem. Now, placement of nitrogen in other situations is justified when you're avoiding two other kinds of losses. If you want to reduce nitrogen immobilization, meaning tie up in carbonaceous residues, placement, or you want to reduce volatilization, placement below the surface works. Substitute steel for chemistry, because you could also use chemistry to get at least at the volatilization part. We all know that anhydrous has to be placed, but what about things like UAN and urea? What losses do you really expect? Placement will reduce losses due to immobilization and volatilization. I already told you what immobilization is. Volatilization is the loss of ammonia gas from urea-containing materials because of urease enzyme. If you have a timely rain, my father knew about ammonia volatilization from urea 60 years ago. And used to have just, he figured he just wanted a rain shower to chase the fertilizer buggy across the field. Now we were on a fox sandy loam, which is one of the coarser textured soils in southern Michigan, which meant he could get out there in the rain and he didn't have to worry about getting stuck and let it chase him across the field. Not all of you have that option. But nonetheless, if you get rain to incorporate it, you don't have to worry about urea being volatilized. It's borne out in these data here where there's no statistical difference in any of these nitrogen sources, agrotane treated urea, ESN, polymer-coated urea, neutrosphere-treated urea, or urea itself, it all worked out the same because it rained on us right after we put this study out. Sometimes you can get away with putting on a bit more nitrogen. Insurance, you heard me talk about insurance fertility. If we're down here at 80 units of N, we got a pretty good response in this environment to polymer-coated urea, ESN. If we moved up to 120, we're still getting a pretty good response to ESN and agrotane-treated urea. But once we moved up to 160 and yields did move up nicely too, there was no difference. So we overcame volatilization losses by using a bit more nitrogen. These kind of products you need to factor in what's it cost to reverse the risk versus what's it cost to have a little more in. Sometimes though you can use a lot more and it won't work. These are from my colleagues down in Georgia back in the early 80s and this table is quite infamous. We have three N rates here. We have four different, uh, sorry, three different nitrogen placements for UAN. This is no-till corn after corn. So you go up to 240 units and you're getting 114 bushels. Yeah, you get a bit of a yield improvement if you surface band. But the real bang for the buck was when you injected it to get it below the surface to get it away from both immobilization and volatilization. You could make 80 units of N yield better than 240. That can make steel seem like a fairly valuable nitrogen management tool. I will say that there are more NBPT options out there. NBP, NBPT, the molecule, has come off patent, so you will see some NBPT products. Please be sure to make sure your retailer who puts these on urea for you, or if you're putting them in UAN, make sure you understand how much NBPT is in it. I reviewed several labels lately. They're ugly because they don't tell you, and sometimes it's only 5% NVPT. Agritame Max is about 30% NVPT. So you can pay a lot of money and not get much of what the real active ingredient is. SuperU is one of the first one of these we've looked at. It is a mixture of both NVPT and DCD on urea. Yields about as well regardless of the tillage environment. 
Some are not as good. We have done some work over the years. This is agritain, agritain plus neutrosphere-in, ammonium nitrate, which is kind of our gold standard relative to urea. Environmentally sensitive nitrogen, or whatever they're calling that now, from uh, polymer coated. NSN here, urea here, super U, intermediate super U plus NSN. The take home I have on these particular materials is that they're needed in some fields in all years, because we have some that are just ugly for losses. We have more fields in some years, but you have to know the field, know your situation, and know the season. There are alternatives to these, usually it's steel for injection, but they may be cheaper or more doable or not. If you're listening to this podcast and it's got you thinking about your no-till nutrient management program, you'll be sure to pick up helpful tips and information at the upcoming 27th Annual National No-Tillage Conference. Register online today for just $304 and $85 savings off the full rate. Save even more when you register additional farm family members for just $279. Or complete and return the downloadable registration form by going to notillconference.com. To register by phone or to speak with an NNTC staff member, please call 262-432-0388 or email your questions to nntc at no-tillfarmer.com. When it comes to making decisions about nutrient applications, John Grove says it's important for no-tillers to understand whether they're feeding the crop or the soil. He'll wrap up this podcast by discussing what he's seen in the field and in research about the payoff of starter fertilizer in certain climates and conditions, and what potentially could be done to help improve phosphorus fertilizer efficiency in certain no-till situations. Placement in general has been about not just nitrogen, but phosphorus and microbes, so I'm gonna take the last few minutes to talk a little bit about this. Generally, are you enhancing soil fertility or are you feeding the crop? With placement, you're typically trying to feed the crop, particularly two by two or pop-ups. You need to understand something about the crop root growth habits and you need to consider efficiency because you're avoiding these losses. But again, there's cost to the equipment, time, especially if you're doing this at planting and being timely. We can put nutrients on the crop with foliar, we can put them on the soil or we can put them in the soil. Depends a little bit on your situation and the nutrient. I like foliar for micronutrients and high value crops. If stratification is such a good thing, why do you need nutrient placement? Well, partly because of this. We are planting early and earlier and our seedling environments are colder. Nutrients from organic matter kind of slow to release when it's cold and the low mobility nutrients like phosphate are slowed down too. Even mass flow is slowed down. Data out of Indiana strongly suggests that early planted no-till environments are the environments where starter or pop-up will often pay. Not always, sometimes you're just doing it for aesthetics for the landlord. Generally, I don't have any exceptions to dry versus liquid, as long as you're putting on a similar placement at a similar rate at a similar time. Generally, as the level of soil fertility in the soil rises, these starters and pop-ups have less value. And I have never seen value in my state or in a couple of the surrounding ones where they've done some good research to deep nutrient placement. We just have enough moisture that that's just not the issue. We do see some benefits occasionally because we have acid subsoils to deep placed lime, gypsum, and manure. 
Here's my example of probability. These are no response sites. This is the number of observations we have across fields. This is a responding site. And this is soil test P level. They all responded when they were this low. And then as we got up in here, the number of proportionate responses got way low. We didn't have a lot of fields out here, but then again, the number of responses we got to starter were also low. So if your soil test levels are pretty good, you won't get a yield response. You might get an aesthetic response. It might look good, grow off better. I'm not going to deny that. But you might not have anything to put in the bin. You need to watch your composition. Most In Kentucky, most people are using N plus P starters or pop-ups. But as you go north, there is a bit of an argument for N plus P plus K. Micros can be put on in a number of ways. I really like them blended with bulk and applied prior at planting. I also like them as starters and pop-ups if they're compatible. Foliar application is often done, but a jar test is required. Don't just put this stuff in the tank with your favorite herbicide or insecticide post-emergence and think it's always going to work. Can we improve phosphorus fertilizer efficiency? We know that phosphorus does get fixed by these cations in acid soils and by calcium and alkaline soil. And we have a number of new additives in the market that promise to enhance our phosphorus use efficiency. I've named a number of these, but there's some other ones on the market as well. We've looked at all of them, but the one that I've looked at most extensively is a maleic itaconic copolymer. This is a series of fields that have four different levels of soil test P by Malik 3, from 8.4, which is miserable, all the way up to 15.8, which is still low. You can see that yields in corn in this year went up as a function of soil test. And when 44 pounds of P2O5 was applied, which is about 100 pounds of O46O, we got, still got a pretty good yield response in each one of these, and it was still going up as a function of soil test. By the time you got to 88, though, which is really where it plateaued out, there's not much response. These are all pretty much the same all the way through here. When we added this particular product in here, we have absolutely no joy. It turns out that at today's prices, this product is available this spring, or will be available this spring in Kentucky. I could have bought 11 more pounds of P2O5 per acre for the price of that product. 11 pounds of P2O5 would have gotten me one quarter minimum of the way in yield here. That's about 12 bushel an acre. Probably would have gotten me about that much here. Probably got me about five bushel an acre here and probably would have got me about four bushel an acre there. I think I'd have been better off in this instance across these four fields in having. Anybody know who this is? Harry Houdini. I use him to guide my fundamental principle of no-till crop production. Even his junior apprentice, Harry Potter, understands there's no such thing as magic. And as Einstein, I paraphrase, says it's knowledge, in this case knowledge of the crop, your biology, your chemistry, your physics, and your nutrient behavior and management options that are going to give you a really good uh, no-till soil crop management system. We'd like to sincerely thank John Grove, Director of the University of Kentucky's Research and Education Center, for sharing very in-depth information about the way no-till environments can affect nutrient availability and how growers should go about getting the answers they need from the soil about plant nutrient requirements. 
For those listeners who'd like to hear more about successful strategies for no-tilling, please visit notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Calmer Cornheads, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdoberstein at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider Daily and Weekly Email Updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with the farmer farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For University of Kentucky researcher John Grove and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Senior Editor John Dauberstein. Thank you for listening.